This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to talk about the census and uh, the historical and contemporary role of the census in American democracy. Why do we do a census? Why is it in the Constitution? And why is it so crucial uh, for our democracy? Uh, We have with us, I think, the foremost academic and policy authority on this topic, uh, Terry Sullivan, who's a a former professor uh, and leader of the University of Texas, as well as the University of uh, Virginia. Uh, She's now a University of professor and president emerita of the University of Virginia and currently serving as the interim provost of Michigan State University, her alma mater. Uh, Terry Sullivan uh, began her academic career as a demographer, developing analytical techniques uh, that the census uses today, uh, including the census public use sample. She was an investigator on a large international sample survey with colleagues at the University of Texas, including one you might have heard of, uh, Elizabeth Warren. They led an original large-scale data collection of consumer bankruptcy records, among many other topics. So uh, we have someone who's an expert on the study of the census and and an expert on the the doing of the census. Uh, Terry, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So before we turn to our discussion with Terry Sullivan, we have, uh, of course, Zachary's uh, scene-setting poem for this week. Uh, What's your poem titled, Zachary? Dear Governor. Dear Governor. Let's hear it. I know you mean well. I know you don't mean to divide us, heaven and hell. I know you sleep uncertain every night, knowing deep down we are right. I know you are trying to save some remnant of a nation you think has become far too feminine. I know you believe in some American mythology of white Christian exclusionary methodology. I know you can count. I know you can see that two and two does not equal three. I know you know just as well as I that all of us triumph when none of us cry. I know you understand we all deserve to be heard. None of us can live with dreams deferred. I know you believe in this great democracy, so don't hide away in your empty hypocrisy. There's something more important than party, something more important than who came here earlier tardy. There is something more righteous even than patriotism, or which side you fall on of the partisan schism. There is something more mighty than a racist nostalgic, something more powerful than propaganda magic. There is something far more powerful than you or I, and I hope you can see it. We need you to try. It's the truth. And everyone knows it is the divine, ever-righteous rose. So when it comes time for this ten-year count, remember we won't forget. We'll hold you to account. Don't let us see our values affronted. Come April, don't let us see America stunted. Don't let our voices be discounted. And see to it, please. Make sure we're all counted. Sincerely, America's undercounted. I love it, Zachary. What, What is your poem really saying? My poem is really about how important it is that state leaders uh, like the governor of Texas get involved um, in the census and make sure that everyone's counted because there are a lot of threats to it right now and we need to make sure that it's as accurate as possible. That's great. That's great. Uh, Terry, why do we do a census in our democracy? Great question. It's actually in the sixth sentence of the Constitution. Um, And so the other question is, why did they put it in the Constitution? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, In fact, it was a bold thing to do in 1789 because Europeans had a deep superstition about conducting censuses um, based on an incident recounted in um, a book of chronicles about King David 
doing an unauthorized census and then being punished by God. So they were afraid that if a census had not been explicitly divinely authorized, it was sacrilegious. And um, the founders decided to go against that. And the reason was they wanted the House of Representatives to be based proportionate to the numbers of people in the states. And to do that, they had to know how many people there were. So the first census was conducted in 1790, and there's been one every 10 years since. This will be the 24th census this year. Wow. Uh, Chase West, one of our students, uh, asks, uh, how has the census been politically uh, used? How has it been politicized historically uh, since, since this first census of 1790? My name is Chase West, and I'm a third-year biochemistry major. My question is, how has the census been politicized historically, and how does that relate to the politicization of the census today? Thomas Jefferson was in charge of the first census, and he complained to George Washington that he was certain there had been an undercount. Uh, that wasn't so much political. That was just a reflection of right. the difficulties of the operations then. Uh, but there has been uh, uh, political cer- concerns of various kinds, and it shows itself in terms of, first of all, budget. Congress can restrict the budget the Census Bureau has, and that happened um, uh, after the 2010 census. Um, uh, the Census Bureau has never gotten its uh, what it's requested or even close to it. And uh, as a result, they cut back dramatically on a lot of the testing they would normally have done. So the GAO has put this census on its uh, top ten highest risk endeavors by the federal government because of the concern that inadequately tested technology uh, may lead the census to fail. One of the one of the cost cutting measures was to move as many people as possible from responding in paper to responding online, and uh, in addition, enumerators and others are going to be using tablets and other electronic devices. It's more efficient, but it's only been through one test in the Providence uh, pretest, uh, which happened in uh, 2018. So there's some concern that things could go wrong. Uh, I should also note that the Australian Census Bureau got hacked last year. And there's been a lot of concern that somebody will try to either hack the census or hijack information from individuals before or as it's being transmitted to the census. There's lots of things people are worried about. Some of them are political and some of them I'd call quasi-political. I see. Uh, And maybe the biggest issue is undercount, as always. The undercount is not randomly distributed across the population. Uh, the hard-to-count people are the most likely not to be counted. And, and the big hard-to-count groups, and now think about Texas when I say this, are children, minority groups, rural residents, and renters. And Texas has a big share of all of those. Yes. But Texas actually is a state very likely to have a large undercount. And uh, this is an old story, right? Before we talk about the contemporary issues with technology and hacking, which I I do want us to talk about, uh, the problem of an undercount obviously goes back to Thomas Jefferson's concerns. How over time in prior censuses, how how has the government dealt with these concerns of an undercount? Uh, Well, the principal way has been by going back to a household over and over again to try and get a completed return. And that's expensive because you're sending a human being on a payroll uh, you know, to go knock on doors. Right. But the Census Bureau has been very diligent about doing that, and one way to save money is to cut back on how much of that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will also be done uh, in this census. Instead, they will turn to what are called administrative records. So if you live at 121 Pine Avenue, 
and there's no census return for 121 Pine Avenue. They'll go to some other administrative record, uh, like Social Security records, to see if they can find out who's in that household. Uh, and that's different from what they've done in the past. But the Census Bureau works very hard to get a complete count. It's just that America is hard to count. We're a mobile population. Um, we've got people who live in unusual or uh, uh, perhaps illegal housing. Um, we've got people for who, for one reason or another, don't want to be counted, don't like the government, uh, worried that they're engaged in something illegal. Um, so there are lots of genuine problems to counting. And the solution to it has principally been money. Now, after the 1980 round of censuses, big city mayors were very concerned that their cities had been undercounted and launched a series of lawsuits. I think there were uh, something like 180 lawsuits against the census that year. And the issue came up of whether you could adjust the census uh, with, with sampling, with a post-enumeration survey taken after the census. Uh, and, you know, ultimately the issue was, could you adjust all the way down to a block level? And while the Census Bureau was cleared by the Supreme Court to do this for some purposes, not for apportioning the House of Representatives, but for other purposes, they decided that for technical reasons, they didn't think they could do it. They didn't think it was robust enough to adjust all the way down to very fine geographic detail. So we're back to the problem of how do we get people counted who are hard to count? Another one of our students, uh, Abby Heimer, asks uh, about the ways in which uh, certain groups have intentionally been undercounted, uh, particularly uh, due to racial categorization. Can we hear that question? Hi, my name is Abby Heimer. I'm a second year international relations and Spanish double major from Dallas, Texas. My question is, the first census ever taken in 1790 and the following seven were taken in an era where slavery had yet to be abolished. Through that, how has the census in regards to racial categorization changed, and do you think it's fully inclusive to all races and racial identities? Well, you know, I would say that it is an issue, but it's a function of these other things I've mentioned. Uh, particularly low-income members of minority groups uh, are more likely to be renters. They're more likely to move often. They live in... Um, crowded housing conditions. Um, very often they're subject to eviction and other such things, so there's housing instability. And they often have, uh, because they're often younger and have more children, uh, they've also got more children who may be undercounted. Some children are undercounted because they're living with grandparents or in other kinds of irregular situations. And whoever's filling out the census form doesn't actually know if this child should be counted here or not. Uh, but some children aren't counted because the housing unit doesn't permit children, or the parents are trying to shield the child from being known by the government. There are all kinds of reasons why this could happen. But an undercount has really serious consequences down the road. And you know, let me just t tell you about one of them. Please, please. About $1.5 trillion of federal revenue sharing has something in the formula that is based on population or a particular population. And so a single poor child who is missed can cost a school district $1,700 a year in Title I funds. So if you have a school district that has a lot of poor children who get undercounted, they're going to lose out on a lot of federal money. And, of course, that federal money will be spent. It'll just be spent somewhere 
where the count was better. Right. And, and, and I guess uh, underlying Abby's question, right, is has have the race categories that are defined within the census and the way they're counted been used intentionally to uh, affect or prejudice the ways in which money is spent? Um, you know, that's, that's a hard question to ask. I, I, I think it's unlikely the Bureau itself did it. But sometimes the Bureau is reliant on other federal agencies. So right. in 2017, after a lot of expert analysis, the Bureau recommended adding a category of Middle Eastern and North African to the count, uh, a separate category that you could check. And the Office of Management and Budget sat on that recommendation for so long that it could not be enacted for this census. But that's an example of something where there was certainly political opposition mounted against the category. Uh, you know, there were interest groups who wrote to demand that it not be included. Uh, and simply the names you use, so how do you define Mexican-Americans? What the Bureau tries to do is to come up with a variety of terms that people might call themselves by. So both Latino and Chicano are, will be included in the mm-hmm. census. Great. Zachary? Um, so why is it that when a lot of us realize how important this census is and how vital it is to our democracy, to people, and to governments, why is it that it's something we don't talk about very often when it comes to discussing government? It seems to be something that we we uh, talk about when it's about to happen and then completely forget about for the next nine years. <laughs> well, because it does happen just once every <laughs> ten years, Uh, We tend to focus a lot of attention on it then. And also the Census Bureau spends a good bit of time and effort mobilizing the population once every 10 years. Uh, And that's going on right now. You should be seeing public service ads and um, um, schools and pediatricians and other trusted individuals are being encouraged to encourage their clients to to participate in the census. Uh, So... It's partly the public relations effort. But in fact, the census data are used heavily by lots of people. Sometimes they don't even realize they're using census data. But it's used by marketers. I mentioned school districts that choose to plan highways. Businesses, when they're thinking about where to put a new location, they're using census data to figure that out. There's just lots and lots of uses of the census data uh, all throughout the economy. Um, The other thing that's technically important for those of us who are social scientists is the census is used as the sampling frame for all future samples that are drawn, both in the private sector and the public sector, because it's the only database that maps every individual into a unique geographic location. I, I was thinking about that, Terry, that you know, we, we use it so often as social scientists, as citizens, as policy analysts. Uh, how is it, coming back to your earlier points, that we could put ourselves in a situation now where there seems so many risks to the veracity of this data due to hacking, due to insufficient um, preparation uh, this year? How did we come to this point? Well, any demographer who's not worried about it has been paying attention. <laughs> I think a lot of us are very concerned that this might not be a good census. And, I, you know, I will say in the political realm there is a belief, and I want to underscore this is a belief um, and, and not necessarily a proven fact, but there's a belief that a poor census benefits Republicans. Uh, and, you know, I think that the flap over the citizenship question, which got decided by the Supreme Court last year, is an example of this. The citizenship question, and there was some experimental data to support this, suppressed the responses by Latinos 
whether they were legally present in the United States or not. They saw that question and they simply didn't answer. So if you know that's going to be the case and you put the question on anyway, is that an effort to suppress the count of Latinos? And Latinos are believed, and I think this is demonstrated more often to vote Democratic, so is this an effort to cut them out of the count? Uh, there was a lot of supposition about this. What the Supreme Court ended up saying was that the question could not be added in 2020 because the Secretary of Commerce gave a pretextual reason for adding it. Right. That is, they didn't believe the reason he gave. Um, but, you know, it has led people to think that there is a political advantage to the undercount. Um, I, I think the other thing which is interesting is that the, President Trump has ordered the Census Bureau to try to construct a best estimate of who is a citizen and who is not, but not using census data, using other data, and to seek to give state legislatures two data files, one which is the count by small geographic area, and the other which is um, the count of voting age citizens, um, so that presumably legislatures could choose how they wanted to redistrict. This doesn't affect Congress and the reapportionment. It only affects how districts are drawn inside the state for those members of Congress. And then most states also use it to district uh, state legislatures as well. Just just to be clear on that, uh, and, and I think you mentioned this before, right? Uh, the Congress, co- the Constitution requires that Congress is apportions its seats based on the census, not on other data. But states can use other data for their state seats, correct? It is certainly the case that Congress must use the the raw data as it comes from the Census Bureau. That is true. Um, it is believed that legislatures have a good bit of leeway in how they redistrict. I say believed because I feel certain there'll be another round of lawsuits about it. Uh, and, you know, particularly in states that have a record of seeking to suppress voting rights of minority groups. Um, but I believe right now, I'd say the general opinion seems to be state legislatures have a lot of leeway. And last summer's Supreme Court decision about gerrymandering, which said it was a political matter and not a matter for the courts, probably reinforces that. And in the past, Terry, I, I don't, my, as a historian myself, I don't know the answer to this. In the past, in the past have legislatures used non-census data in apportioning uh, state assembly and state senate seats? Uh, yeah, I understand that Hawaii has used um, uh, voting records or voting rolls uh, in part because there are so many people living in Hawaii who are not really residents of the state, so they are stationed with the military, they're tourists, they're short-term visitors, and so on. Um, so I, I do understand that's one state that has done it, but I, there are other states who are certainly looking at it. Hmm. So I guess uh, what we have to turn to now, what we always turn to uh, in the latter part of our discussions, is, is what can we do about this? Uh, for those of us who care about an accurate count, first of all, because we're good social scientists and care about accuracy, but also because we care about fairness. And, and your point about schools is so poignant. Um, the, the funding for, uh, for children, for schools, for ch- child health, for so many issues is, is deeply dependent upon an accurate count. W- what can we do as, as citizens? and activists to to encourage a good census? Well, each of us has a network. We have, you know, friends and neighbors and coworkers and others that we interact with, and it's a great time to encourage the people we know to complete the census form. 
And, uh, you know, I think that we can put to rest a lot of people's concerns about their confidentiality of their personal data. I, I uh, firmly believe that the Census Bureau does keep that information confidential. Census employees take a lifelong oath to keep it confidential, and they're not permitted by law to share it with any other agency. So I think that the data themselves are uh, about as secure as we can make it, and I think people should feel free to um, answer it. Um, there are also complete count committees that are seeking to turn out the count. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that there is one in Travis County uh, or possibly in the city of Austin, uh, and there are other localities in Texas that have it. Unlike um, many states, Texas does not have a complete count committee for the whole state. But states like California are putting forward a lot of money um, to basically do what is almost a parallel census to help ensure that they have the maximum count. So uh, a lot of states are doing a lot of work to make sure people get counted. And, and, and what about going forward uh, beyond this census? What, what can we do as uh, we hope and, and hypothesize on our weekly podcast here that we're entering a reform period for our government uh, soon? How do we encourage this to be part of a, a series of what we might call progressive reforms for our, our government going forward? Well, I think one thing is, to the extent possible, to try and insulate the Census Bureau from politicization. Uh, right now, the people in the Census Bureau tend to be very dedicated professionals, highly skilled, by the way. I mean, the, some of the biggest reforms in social science data collection have come out of the Census Bureau, um, and to try and insulate them from this. And, of course, part of that insulation is don't starve them of the funds they need to do the research to do a better count. And... It's easy to do that in years that don't end in zero because you figure the census is far away. Right. We can save money on that now. <laughs> well, actually, you can't. Right. You've got to keep going because uh, people in the Bureau need to continue to test and refine their techniques as our population changes and as the technology around us changes. I think those are, those are you know, maybe the most important issues. Well, as I listen to you, it also it's so clear that we need talented people, uh, leading thinkers uh, as scholars, as demographers, uh, to be involved with these issues and to vote to devote some of their own career to them. How did you get involved in this? Uh, well, I did my uh, actually I did my dissertation using the 1960 and the 1970 public use samples. So these are these are developed by the Census Bureau. They are extracts of the census data, but they're actual samples. So you don't have to worry about whether you have a random sample or not. You do. Any identifying information is gone, so you can't tell who this person is. What you know, however, is you know the generic information about um, age, sex, race, level of education, and so on. So uh, these are pretty detailed samples, and I use them to estimate the amount of underemployment in the United States. Hmm. Not not just unemployment, right? Which which you know is the the, the measurement of that is pretty well developed now. Uh, but measures of underemployment. And, um, I, you know, I've, I learned a lot about the census in the, in the course of doing that. And of course, I taught demography courses at Texas for many years um, using census data in class. Uh, but eventually, the Census Bureau asked me to serve on their, uh, they have a professional advisory group made up of statisticians and others who, you know, are, uh, are trained in areas the census is interested in. I eventually chaired that group. Um, and we were consulted on a wide variety of things. I served on a couple of National Academy panels that also looked at uh, particular issues about the census. So I've had the opportunity to 
see the Census Bureau from a number of different perspectives, and I've always been impressed with how hard they work and how hard they try to do the right thing. The issue is with any kind of new, kind of technical innovation, what is the right thing is hard to figure out. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, right now that issue is about what's called differential privacy, which is a statistical technique the Bureau um, is planning to deploy in the census. A lot of the professional community is unhappy about it. There'll be a lot of be a lot of talk, conversation about that, but it's an effort to protect the privacy of individuals by injecting what's called noise into the data. Uh, and the intention is that you'll never be able to identify a particular individual in the census. But what what users are worried about is you'll never know if your data are accurate. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, so Terry, my, my, my final question for you, this has been just a wonderful, uh, in-depth uh, examination of these issues. Uh, do you see uh, other young, talented people, um, the, the next generation of Terry Sullivan's out there getting involved with these issues, bringing their talent to bear, not just on the count, but on the statistical measures and the uses of technology and demography uh, around these issues? Uh, yeah, I think I, I do think that that is happening. I I had the privilege of giving the president's invited address at the American Statistical Association uh, last summer, and I talked about these very issues. And um, I was really impressed by how many statisticians, including students who were present there, were intrigued by the issues and by the opportunity to really be at the cutting edge of uh, important developments. Uh, so I think the Census Bureau will be able to continue to recruit very talented people, you know, assuming they've got the money to do it with. Right, right. Zachary, do you think young people like yourself are, will be excited and energized to, uh, to care about these issues and to get involved uh, with doing the work of making sure that, that we're counted in a democracy, counted in a way that protects privacy but also allows for the accurate use of our resources? I think we will, and I think it's mainly because it's so important to our future, uh, more so than really any other group in American society. It's it's most important to America's young people. But I think that what we really need to think about going forward is how do we bring the census to the forefront of our political discussions, even when it's not a year when we're about to conduct a census. Right, to keep, to keep our attention on the issue. Great. Uh, Terry, really last question now. What should our listeners be looking for to what, what will they hear from the census in the next few weeks? We, we in, in Austin have not received anything yet. What, what should we be looking for? Well, you won't get anything probably until starting March 12th, and it will be a letter that every household receives. Now, Austin is an area that has a high level of connectivity and, um, and Internet usage. So it's very likely that most of the Austin population is going to get um, a letter that has a code. You can enter that code online that will uniquely identify your household address, and you can complete the census online. It'll take about 10 minutes. You can do it with a smartphone, too. For people who don't have access uh, to the Internet, there will also be paper questionnaires, and they're available in uh, 12 or 13 languages. So even if English is not your first language, you should be able to get the census form in a language that you understand. Will it be sent to people's homes? How does that work? Yes, it goes to your household address. And so uh, there was an effort made starting last October to do what's called canvassing, that is to identify every residential address in the United States. And so, uh, you know, if for any reason your household has not received this letter in the mail uh, by the end of March, you will certainly have plenty of opportunities and you'll see lots of public service announcements 
giving you a phone number you can call to ask for a census questionnaire. I see. But the main thing is to be looking for the letter in the Postal Service delivery to your home. That's correct. Great. Terry, thank you so much for sharing your expertise uh, and historical perspective with us. And and I hope uh, many of our listeners take uh, from you not just the knowledge you share, but also the the commitment to uh, this important institution, this vital institution in our democracy. Thank, Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Jeremy and Zach. And, you know, let me just say uh, everyone counts. Everyone counts. That's right. And Zachary, thank you for your poem and for your questions today and for helping to inspire young people to care about the census and our democracy. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for this week's episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.